Jesus' name, amen. If you have your Bibles, please open with me to the book of Ephesians, chapter 3. Ephesians, chapter 3. I'm going to begin reading the text that we want to look at this morning is really the second half of the the last part, really the closing part of this first half of the book. And it's Paul's prayer, the second prayer of this book, and I want to, with God's help, look at this this morning. So Ephesians chapter 3, I want to read from verse 14 to the end of the chapter. It says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ." which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. What a prayer, and what a text that we want to look at this morning. And, and really my thought for this morning, I'm, I'm thinking of the person here, or maybe it's you, but the person who may be a Christian, a genuine Christian for years, maybe even decades, and you know the Lord and you've walked with Him, but as years pass by, perhaps you have found that your passion and your vitality has waned. And you still go on reading your Bible and praying and, and walking with Him, but it has become, at times, more of a discipline than a joy. And if truth be told, you might say that your relationship with God, while authentic, is just lacking zeal. And while you may acknowledge that to be true, you don't know how to overcome the lethargy that you would experience in these times and what is probably most dangerous of all, is that when you are beginning to think that dutiful, disciplined Christianity is normal, and that seasons of joy and delight in the Lord are few and far between. And maybe, maybe someone here who simply would just say, like, my heart is cold. I remember those times when I began to look, when I looked forward to the times of reading my Bible and praying and spending time with God, but now I'm mature, and now I just do the right thing, but I lack the power, and I lack the joy. Or it, it could just be that we all have experienced dry times spiritually, where we just are failing to comprehend the true joy and fullness of the daily Christian life. And so my hope is to see the glory of this text, and Lord willing, help us to, to understand the glory that is ordinary Christianity, day-to-day -day life with God. And so I want to look at this and remind us that our lives as believers are, are not intended to be full of drudgery and duty and discipline, 
but we have a treasure chest of possibilities for everyday living. Because the things that we see Paul asking for in this text are not just truths for some super Christian. They're, they're, they're truths for everyday people. They're not just for pastors and missionaries and people who have time to meditate all day. This is for you and I. This is for every Christian through all generations, Paul says. And so I'm sure that most of you are familiar with the book of Ephesians, but I just want to remind you where we are in the flow of this book. This is the closing paragraph to the first half of the book where Paul laid out some of the most glorious doctrine in all of Scripture. In the next chapter, he goes on into applying that and saying, now this is how we live. But before he does that, the Holy Spirit inspires him to let us see how he prays for this church. And so it's important we understand the context, but the main reason I want to say that is to remind us that it is a prayer of Paul, but it is a reality because it is inspired by God himself. It is inspired by God. Because we have to know that because Paul prays for such high and glorious things that I think sometimes we're tempted to read passages like this and just think it's not a possibility. We have to see that this is God's will for his people. And so as we begin to think about this, I just want to ask you, what is your greatest need? What is your greatest need? And I'm not talking about needing a spouse or needing a home or needing food or needing clothing. I'm asking what is your greatest spiritual need? When you come to God in prayer, when you bow before him, I'm sure you have a purpose. You have a reason. You, you order your prayer life. What is it that you are seeking? I wonder if, like me, sometimes you are too often to set the launch angle of your prayers far too low. And we, we ask for health and strength and wisdom and all these things, which we should but if we are not praying for the truths of Scripture to be realities in our lives, we are not praying as we should. Because you think about, if, if someone came in here and stood up and prayed like the Apostle Paul, suppose he prayed that this church would be filled with all the fullness of God, what would you think? I mean, doesn't that sound a bit over the top, almost blasphemous? We might think that he's some kind of super spiritual person rather than a person who's praying for a biblical request. Paul prays for things here that are so glorious that if they weren't written in Scripture, we would, we would have to turn away from them and say, that's, that's too much. But let me ask you, does it occur to you when we read these things that we can live this way? I mean, do we read this and think this is a possibility, even an expectation for the Christian? And I hope you believe in the power of the gospel, that it is so powerful that it can transform you and fill you with the spirit of the living God so that you can have strength in the inner man, so that you can grasp something of the love of Christ, that Christ dwells in your heart, and that you know something of the fullness of God. We want to pray for greater manifestations of God's Spirit and work in our lives. Calvin said the highest perfection of the godly in this life is an earnest desire to make progress. And that's what I want us to see, that we must make progress in our comprehension of Christ in all of his fullness. We want to know more. We want to grow. We want to make progress in 
fill our souls with the knowledge of our Savior and what he has done and who he is. So upon seeing this passage, I, I hope that you leave here with an earnest desire to make progress. I thought of the words that Paul used to Timothy. He said, uh, take pains, take pains with these things, be absorbed in them so that your progress will be evident to all. And that's what I'm seeking, I guess, is, brother, we need, we need progress in these things to know Christ, to know him. And so I want to look at these requests of Paul, but, but before we do that, just notice three quick things. This is a Paul, this is a prayer for the church, right? The Ephesians are believers. They already are Christians who know and love the Lord, yet Paul prays for these things according to the riches of God's glory. And then notice also there in verse 14 the humility represented when Paul again reminds us that he kneels before God in prayer. And he asks for these things. Because the truths of the first three chapters of Ephesians are so grand and so glorious and it must produce humility in the believer, but that does not cancel out passion and zeal and a desire to have more. And so Paul kneels in humility, but he burns with passion as he prays for these people. And I, I would hope that that is our experience as well. And the last thing is this, I, if we are to make progress in the Christian life, we have to first realize that everything from beginning to end is a work of the Spirit. And so if any time you get this idea that I'm promoting some formula to get to where I'm hoping to go, then I've misrepresented it. Because this is a work of the Spirit. This is a work of the Spirit. Now let's just look at these, at these things. They're really, it seems to me, like five requests here that Paul makes. And the first would be that we would be strengthened with power in the inner man. You see him praying for that. But before we talk about power, I want to consider the, the two words he uses, inner man. This is our need, is it not? To be strengthened in our inner man. This is what really matters, who we truly are. Because the last thing we want to do is be a Pharisee who has it all put together on the outside, and we look all good, but on the inside, full of greed and self-indulgence. But considering the fact that he is writing to believers, we understand that the reason to pray for strength in the inner man is because there is remaining weakness. And I would assume that most of you here can testify that you feel the weakness that you still have. And you know that you have this need to be strengthened. Because it is so easy, is it not, to come here and look all pretty and polite and put together and on the inside be someone so different. We have weaknesses and we need God's spirit to strengthen us. And that's, what, that, that's the power that Paul is seeking. He's seeking spiritual power, not some version of self-determination. This is God-given spiritual power, which enables us to put sin to death, to overcome temptation, to stand for the truth, to be able to love people, to lead, to have the courage to, to do what is right. This is spirit-empowered strength to die to yourself and to live for the Lord. We need strength. We need this. Because weakness in our inner man, our, our true selves, is something that many of us are aware of. And in fact, it's probably true that the more mature you are, the more you recognize your weakness and your need. Because 
When we think we are strong, we come face to face with suffering and temptation, and we realize that we are weak. And as was mentioned this morning, we recognize that we need Christ, or we can do nothing. So this is our great need, to be strengthened by the Spirit of God in the inner man. And I just want to notice that we, this is not sought based on merit or through a formula. Paul asks, according to the riches of God's glory. That's what we ask on. Not based on, on what we deserve or what we think we should have. We ask, we bow before God and ask according to his riches and his glory that he would grant strength in the inner man. But then Paul goes on and he says, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now, I just want to point out that, that someone has said of this text that it is true, that these requests are connected. And, and I think it was even given as an illustration. It's kind of like a staircase that each one is higher than the next, but they're all connected. And Paul is seeking these things one after another, ascending higher and higher. And so the prayer for strength has a purpose, and it is that Christ may dwell in your hearts. Now, if you hear that and it sounds a bit off to you, it's because you know a certain truth, right? That Christ does dwell in the hearts of the believer. We know in Romans 8, 9, that if anybody does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. So why is Paul praying this? Well, he, we know that he's not praying for them to receive the Holy Spirit. He's not praying for them that Christ would begin to dwell in their hearts. He already does because they're fellow believers. Now, think with me. He prays for strength. He prays that they would be strengthened in the inner man right before he prays that Christ would dwell in their hearts. And the truth is this, that when you are given strength to overcome sin, when you are given strength to deal with the inner man so that you are cleansing yourself from every impurity, Christ comes in his fullness and dwells within you in a greater way. I mean, this is basic Christianity. When we kill sin, as God points it out to us, Christ is dwelling richly. You know, Colossians even says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And as that happens, we recognize our sin and put it away, and Christ is richly dwelling in us. Now, let me ask you, when, for those of you who are married, when you first got married, when the pastor pronounced you husband and wife, did you think that this is now the end? But I, I have a husband. I have a wife. I'm good to go. No, it was the beginning. It was the beginning of, of experiencing joy and closeness. Likewise, when we are sealed with the Spirit of God, when he is given as a pledge of our inheritance, it was not the end of the matter, as though now we are saved, now we have Christ, now we just go on. It was the beginning of growing in the gracious influence of the person of Christ. Growing in the gracious influence of the person of Christ. And maybe the word here to think about is dwell, that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. It's the word that means to reside, to be down, to, to permeate every part of us. It's the idea of closeness with our Savior. Let me ask you, are you living in a constant awareness of the nearness of the Lord? Has he made himself so at home in your life that you know his presence throughout the day? Do you know that he is with you the moment you open your eyes in the morning and you think of all the things that are awaiting you that day? Do you know his presence as you go throughout your day? 
Brother, we're not meant to have this little meeting time with the Lord and then go on with our time. He is to be permeating all of our lives throughout the day. He is our life. And so just like the reality of marriage does not automatically produce closeness, it takes time and work, and it's cultivated over a period of time, so also closeness with Christ takes the same things. It takes time, it takes discipline, it takes consistency, it takes perseverance. I mean, we have to think. Think of the reality of this. Christ dwelling in our hearts. I don't just ask you to think about what kind of walking miracle a Christian really is, right? The Christian is a man or a woman in whom Christ himself resides. No wonder Paul prays for this. He wants us to know the reality of this on a daily basis. He wants to, to know that this is not just some abstract truth out there, just, just something to be aware of. This is something for us to know even experientially. We can go over to Colossians 1 and we read that Paul says, the glorious mystery that he is unfolding is this, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ, there it is. Christ in you, brethren. That's what we need. That's what we have. And we have to recognize we need teaching. We need ministering to. We need encouragement. We need to do all these things to one another. But do you recognize that you have the spirit of the living God in you? We are not helpless people. We are not. Brethren, this is what strengthens believers. The pervading presence of of the indwelling Christ. That is our strength. And, and the question may be, how do we experience this? How do we grow in this? Do we all take a, take a retreat and go somewhere and meditate on something? Or do we, do we try to work ourselves up and, and, and have some experience, some feeling? Paul tells us, doesn't he? Look at the text. That Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, through faith. This happens, brethren, when we believe revealed truth. That's how Christ dwells in our hearts through faith, believing what is given to us. Brethren, we've got to flood our souls with Scripture and fill our minds with truth about our union with Christ. And by God's grace, we can grant, He will grant us to be able to lay hold of that truth by faith, and you will know something of Christ dwelling in your hearts. Not just out there, not just in the church, not just in his people, but in you, in you. Christ dwelling in your heart by faith. But then he goes on, he says, that, so there's a purpose for Christ dwelling in our hearts through faith, that you may be rooted and grounded in love. So here we go to another level, ascending the staircase of prayer. We're strengthened within so that Christ can dwell in us so that we are grounded in love. Now, I want you to just look at the text. Put your eyes on the text and you tell me, is this request a request for uh, the, the request of being grounded in love? Is it a receiving love or is it a giving love? In other, in other words, is it our love for God or is it God's love for us that we are to be grounded in? I just ask this because I've, I've read commentators on both sides, and, and some of them speak very definitively. Because on one hand, we know this. We only love God because he loved us first, right? So before we can love God, we have to be rooted and grounded in his love for us. But on the other hand, Paul's going to go on and talk about Christ's love towards us. So it makes sense 
of him speaking now of our love to God. And I, it's not my intention to get hung up on this and, and lose the general application of this particular request. I would just say this. When you are rooted in Christ's love for you, you will by nature grow in your love for him and for others. Paul uses here the imagery of a, of a tree with roots going deep into the soil, providing stability and permanence, much like we read about in Psalms 1. And borrowing that imagery of Paul, we can think of our spiritual lives putting down the roots of our love, of Christ's love towards us, deeper and deeper. We, we know more and more about his love for us through the revealed truth that we have. And as we take in all that is supplied, what is the result? We grow in our love for God and for others. And so it's both. We've got to understand that there is, there is whatever your interpretation is of this text, they work together. They work together as we are grounded in God's love for us. We then grow in our love for him and for others. And you think about it, rooted in love. This is addressed to Christians, right? Like, like many of us here this morning. And the question is, are we growing in love? Because the purpose of being rooted and, and stable in the love of God is that we would grow in our love for him and for others. Brethren, we know love is the essence of Christianity, is it not? Yes, we have ethics, we have morals, we have standards, we have a law. But love must drive all that we do. Because we know those piercing words from, from Paul, right? If I have the gift of prophecy and I know all mysteries and I, know I have all knowledge, if I have all faith to remove mountains but I have not love, nothing. We need to grow in love. I just want to think about this prayer request that Paul makes, that we would be rooted and grounded in love, that it would permeate everything we did. And brethren, this is not some idealistic fantasy prayer. This is our aim as Christians. Indeed, it is even the great evidence that Christ dwells within us that we love. What did Jesus say? The great command is to love God and love others. Love is the law of Christ. He says, this is the command I give you, that you love one another. Where Christ is dwelling in the hearts of his people, there is a world of love. The church is a world of love. Now let me ask you, is this your prayer? Is this something that you are seeking to be grounded in love more and more? Paul even said in, in 2 Corinthians 5, he says, the love of Christ is, controls us. And is that happening as we are maturing? Is that our testimony that we walk, that more than anything else in the world, the love of Christ controls us? And we know that we can't will ourselves to do this. It's, it's unnatural to us. But all the more reason to pray, Lord, I, I know I need to love my wife. I need to love my husband. I need to love those who are hard to love. I would encourage you this morning to pray this for yourselves and for your brothers and sisters in the church. Pray that we would be a people who are deeply rooted in love for God and for others. And love for Christ and for his people would be our motivation.
But then we come to this request that he says that we would comprehend the love of Christ. And here we know, we know for sure, that this is a request to understand more of Christ's love for us. And I struggle, I, how do we even begin to comprehend this? How do we even begin to speak on a subject that is so vast that Paul says it, it surpasses knowledge? How do finite minds begin to even wrap yourselves around infinite love? How can we rightly think of Christ's love for us? Then again, the purpose of the prayer is that we might know, that we might grow, that we might grapple with it, that we might extend our comprehension of it beyond what it is now. And so I just want to make, point out a few things. This, this text is so rich that you could spend years here. But I just want to point out a few things. One is this. Our great need is to first know something. We must first know something, specifically here, the love of Christ. Knowing sometimes makes all the difference, right? We see a storm coming, but we know we have a shelter to go to, so we don't fear. Or we see a, a, a watchdog, guard dog coming, but we know he's on a chain, so we don't fear. Knowing things is transforming, and nothing is as transforming as knowing the love of Christ. Paul actually uses the word comprehend, which actually is more, it's more of a word that means apprehend. To show us that we must first grasp with our minds. We're not bypassing our minds, putting them on the shelves when it comes to knowing the love of Christ and, and meditating on something. We have to know in our minds. It begins with knowledge of him. And so in a day, hear me, in a day when the love of Christ is so maligned, so misrepresented, so lowered in its standard, in its truth, in its proclamation, we can't run from it. We have to proclaim the truth of it. We have to come back to the scriptures and be able to teach it aright. Just because Christ's love is just thrown out there as this big blanket of love and, and gathering everyone in, the misrepresentation of it doesn't mean we should not focus on it. It means we need to get it right. It is so misunderstood, but this is what produces the fire in the soul which draws our affections out to him. And so, first of all, we need to know something of it. But there's something more than knowing. It's experiencing it. Paul then uses a word that he says to the weird, know, which carries the meaning of absolute knowledge or even to feel. It is, brethren, isn't it true that love, while it is cognitive, it is more than that? It, it doesn't stop with that. How do you know something that is unknowable? How do you grasp something that you cannot wrap your mind around? Is by experiencing it for ourselves. Because we can tell people all day long of Christ's love, but until they are saved, they do not truly know of his love. This is speaking of not only knowing it in your mind, but experiencing Christ's love because he is seeking comprehension that goes beyond knowledge. Matthew Henry calls this experiential acquaintance with the love of Christ. Experiential acquaintance. Now, another thing I would say is there, there really are at least two things necessary to begin to comprehend this. One is we have to know something of Christ, right? We have to know him, and we must know ourselves. To really understand Christ's love for us and the magnitude of it, we have to know who Christ is. I mean, we have to think of the one who loves you. He is the God of eternity past, 
God in the flesh, the eternal king, he took on our humanity and walked among us as a man. This is the one who scripture describes as the one who is full of grace and truth, the one who is altogether lovely, the one in whom are unsearchable riches. This is the one who loves you. But even that won't mean anything to you if you don't recognize who we are apart from the Savior's love, right? We were singing of it this morning. Apart from the love of Christ, we are nothing but vile, God-hating, sin-loving, self-centered, Bible says, children of wrath like the, like the rest of mankind. You see, facts fuel passion. And we have to get the facts of who God is and who we are and, and the recognition of what Christ has done for us. For us. How is it that God, of the God of all glory, would love my sorry soul. We have to never lose sight of who we were and who and our continual need this day of mercy, this very moment. Brother, think, you sit there, and even recently you have done things, you have said things, you have thought things that would condemn you to hell for eternity were it not for Christ. And yet, and yet, the love of Christ. I mean, just recognizing his redemption and his forgiveness and his bringing us into his family. We have to recognize oh, the love of Christ and what has it accomplished for us. But then also consider our need to meditate upon the love of Christ. We read there in Jude Verse 21, that we are to keep ourselves in the love of God. This is something that should be foremost in our minds as believers, to know the love of Christ. Jesus himself said this. Listen to what he said in John 15, 9. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. Now, just think of these words. If you were to take that and meditate upon that truth, it would transform us. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Brethren, is it not breathtaking to recognize that Christ, that we are objects of the love of God through Christ? When we see, I mean, do we have a concept of what it is to be loved with a divine love? We are so quick to think from of everything from our human experience. And so we miss what's being said, that we are loved with a divine love. Sometimes we are too accustomed to taking, we're so familiar with the language of Scripture sometimes that we overlook what is really being revealed to us. And we have to meditate upon some of this truth that the love of Christ, the abundant grace that we have received in Him. This is our great need. This is our great need, to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. And I would say this, whatever grace you have been given to understand this, there is even more for you to comprehend. There's more. Believers have never ascended so high that they would say, I have now understood what it is to be loved by Christ. There is always more. There is always higher learning. Now, just, just for a moment, just consider three aspects of Christ's love. First of all, as you know, it is unmerited. I don't know if everyone, everyone in this room 
is saved. But the one thing you must know if you are not a believer is that the love of God is not earned. By grace you are saved through faith and not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. No one has ever earned the love of the Savior. He has freely bestowed it upon us. But then I want you to think about the fact that that Christ's love is eternal. Have you ever, as a believer, worried about the Savior abandoning you or somehow you running out of his love and him dropping you? And hear what the Lord says to his people. He says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have loved you with an everlasting love. As a child of God, you were never out of his sight. There was never a time when he did not love you. And everything that he was doing before you were saved was drawing you to himself. And so if, if your love, if his love for you is not some arbitrary decision that he made, but an eternal plan to lavish his love upon you, then there will never be a time when he withdraws that love from you. And we have that confirmed, don't we, in Romans 8, where he says, I'm convinced that neither death nor life or angels or principalities or things present or things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor any created thing will be able to separate us from what? From the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is the revelation of Jesus Christ, that he would set his love upon us forever, eternally. But then I want you to think about this. As we, as we think of the love of Christ and it fills our souls, we have to recognize that the love of Christ is costly. When we grasp just a bit of God's infinite love for us, it will have a profound effect upon us. And the reason it does is because we recognize what Peter says. Peter says, brethren, conduct yourselves in fear during your time on stay of earth, on, during your time of your stay on earth. Why conduct ourselves in fear, Peter? Why would, why would you tell us that? Well, knowing, this is why, because you have to know that you are not redeemed with perishable things such as silver and gold from your futile way of life, inherited from your fathers, but with the precious blood, as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Have you ever thought about the weight that is carried in that word precious? The precious Blood. The precious blood. Do you see why when you read through the, the letter of First John, Paul or John gets to chapter 3, and he just bursts out. He says, see how great the love of the Father is that we would be called the children of God, and such we are. That's, the, that's him knowing that he is loved by God. That Christ has set his love upon him. And brethren, you know this, that every song and every sermon and every book and every thought, every conception of Christ's love is far too small, far too small. I, I, to, to have a mind capable of grasping his love, and, and yet we fill it with so many things that are just the crime of the earth. We give our affections to so many things that are not worthy of them when Christ has set his love upon us and is drawing us to himself. Why have, I, why have I been so quick to love the things of this world when the king of heaven has set his love upon me? Is it not true that our lament is often that we do not love Christ 
more than we do? I mean, as a believer, don't you ever think that, that, that you would long to love him more? And so we try to will ourselves to grow and we try to work ourselves towards loving him. And you might as well will yourself to fly. It doesn't work. It, 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 it's not going to work. The only way to grow in our love for him is to see his love for us, to behold God in all his fullness. And when we do that, our affections for him are drawn out like the moon draws the tide to know his love. Someone has said that the most difficult task you have as a Christian is to believe that God says that God loves you as much as he says he does. I, I think there's truth in that because sometimes we look at ourselves and we say, why would he ever love me? And be careful how you answer that because there's nothing within you that would draw his love to you. It is the sheer sovereign grace of God. And before I leave this, I just want to caution you about something. Knowing having the knowledge of Christ's love for you is not just some intellectual grasp of some distant or abstract truth. This is a very personal, experiential even, recognition that Christ loves you. That he loves you. Not just out there. It's not just this this group of people that, that you don't know. It's not just that Christ loves, it's that he loves you. He loves you. You. You ever read there in Isaiah 43 where God's speaking to his people? He says, I have called you by name. I have called you by name. And he says, You are mine. You are mine. And so I want to ask you if each of us knows something of Christ's love in a personal way. Is it more than just words on a page or thoughts in your mind? Has he visited you at times where you would? like John, explode with the thought of, behold what manner of love it is that the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called, that I would be called a child of God. I would encourage you to take your Bible sometime and make it your one intention to grasp something of Christ's love for you. Because we read there in John, Jesus says, he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And then Jesus says some of the most precious words. He says, and I will disclose myself to him. This is a personal acquaintance with the Savior. Have you found Christ disclosing himself, manifesting himself to you? To know the love of Christ. And then we finally come to the last request, and it is is this, that we would be filled filled up to all the fullness of God. As you hear that phrase and think about it, let me just remind you again in the context. Paul's wrapping up the first portion of this book by showing us how he prays for these people, right? And as he prays, he's it's like a ladder ascending higher and higher and higher, and he's asking for all these things. And he he prays that we would know the love of Christ, but there's something even further that he prays for that we would be filled up to all the fullness of God. And then you notice what comes next. Period. Nothing. That's it. That's the highest. He can't go any higher. That's the high point of prayer. There's, that's the peak. There's, there's nothing greater to ask for. Paul puts down his pen as the word. That's it. That's what he's praying for these people, that they would be filled up to all the fullness of God. Uh, I, we're going to either... We're going to either become wordsmiths and try to explain this out of the Bible, 
or maybe be tempted to think this is, this is too grand and too glorious, but we have to think about this a little bit. What this shows me is that we are so often, fall, we fall short of our expectations, and we have expectations that are far shorter than they should be for the ordinary Christian life. These people are just like you and I. They're, they're not special Christians. They're not out there pastors and missionaries. They're just like us. They're, they're people like us. And Paul says, I pray that they would be filled with all the fullness of God. Brethren, are we not sometimes too much like Martha when Jesus comes to her and he says, your brother will live again. And she says, oh, I know. In the last day, he's going to rise again. No, no, no. We're so, we, we sometimes think, we read things like this, we think, oh, someday we'll experience these things. But just like Jesus was talking about Martha, this is for now. This is not for some foreign thing. Forget about the future for right now. Think about what God is willing to give us now for today. There's something here for us. And the question would be, what does it mean? How are we to understand this? And I'm not trying to get to the depth of this text. I'm just kind of scraping the top here. But, but let me just offer a couple thoughts on this, and hopefully it will whet your appetite to go home and study on your own. But one word I would give you to understand this word is growth. Growth. The aim of Christianity, as we are told in Romans, is to be conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. And so as that happens, we are increasingly given over to the gracious influence of Christ, whereby sin is eradicated, holiness is cultivated, and God's glory is manifested through us. In that way, we are being filled up to the fullness of, of God. Increasingly growing in the influence of Christ. Another window into the meaning of this is just the context. The, the word that in verse 19 is connecting it to the, to the prior request. Knowing the love of Christ is, being, is part of being filled up to all the fullness of God. When we climb a staircase at home, we don't just jump to the top, right? We go one at a time. And so recognizing that we need to be filled with the fullness of God, we have to first recognize that we need to know the love of Christ. To be strengthened in our inner man, that Christ may dwell in us, that we may know the love of Christ, that we might be filled up to all the fullness of God. Being filled means that God is giving us everything that we need. Everything that we need. It means receiving every promise to us in Christ. With Ephesians 1 says, is every spiritual blessing. Brother, we're not helpless people. In times of need, we can get on our knees and know that God has promised us things that will be far beyond all that we need. He has promised us. And so there's much to be said about this. And maybe another time. But one thing we know for certain is that we want this. We need this. You need this. I need this. This is your greatest need. It is the church's greatest need to be filled up to all the fullness of God that we might reflect his glory, fulfill his purpose. This is what we need. And someone might think, that's just a statement. You're just taking it too far. It's, it's Paul being caught up in hyperbole. He's in a way, I think Paul was ready for that because he picked up his quill or whatever and wrote verse 20. He says, now to him, now to him who is able to do what? Far more, far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us. Brethren, don't think that God is too small to do what he has promised to do. Didn't we just read about God, God's power being manifested in us. You read back there in, in Ephesians 1, 18. 
19, he says that you might know the surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believe. See, the power of God is not just out there, just, just meaningless. It's the power of God towards us who believe. We have to recognize that we, we don't just want to read about being strengthened in the inner man. We want to trust God that he will do his work. This isn't about you attempting to, to accomplish this. It's about God's power, his ability, his desire, his willingness to work these realities into your life. And we read there in verse 21 that it's God's glory to work in his people. It's God's glory to do this. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. See, this is not a prayer for the super Christian so that you can be some kind of standout among the, among the body. This is, this is a prayer to the glory of God that you experience all of these truths. So I don't know the condition of your inner man. I don't know your needs. I, but I want, to, I want to remind you that there is a glory about the ordinary Christian life. The ordinary Christian is a person who is strengthened by God, who is indwelled by the Spirit of the living God, who is rooted in love, that love is the motivation and the driving force behind all that the Christian does. And there's even something of a knowledge of the fullness of God. Have you not read of his fullness? We have received grace upon grace. Every Christian is a miracle. I just want to mention three quick things and I'm through. You and I will never know the heights of Christianity unless we are diligent to ask and seek and knock in prayer for God to do what he has promised. If you over there and you read in Matthew, he says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. You also read that the violent take it by force. You see, there's a violent passion and a hunger for the things that God has promised. And we need to have a hunger stirred within us. And the second thing I want to say is just believe God. There is a massive difference between knowing what the Bible says and trusting what the Bible says as absolute truth. We can be full of knowledge about what the Bible says and believe none of it. I can so identify with what Martin Lloyd-Jones said. He said, the danger then is being satisfied with something that is so much less than what is offered in Scripture, and the danger of interpreting Scripture by our experience and reducing His teaching to the level we know and experience. What is bringing it all down? We don't know anything of, these, of the heights of this glory. So what is explain it away and say it's not for us? Brethren, believe God. Pray for these things. And then I would just say this, worship is the goal. That is why the chapter closes with this. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations. You see, that's the kind of worship that bursts forth in the heart of the believer where John breaks out into these things. And Paul, you see it all through his, oh, what love of God that we would be called his children. That is the glorious salvation we've given. We've been given to him alone. To him alone be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus. That's the cry of the believer. That's the cry of the believer. May God be glorified in all things. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, this of all 
This of all texts is a great text. And I, Lord, there's so much more. Help us, God. Make this a reality in our lives. God, I pray for these dear people that they would know something of the strength within that, it, that comes from your spirit. Strengthen these people, Lord, that they might be able to stand on your word. Stand against temptation. Lord, don't lead us into temptation. Deliver us from evil. Keep us, God. Don't let these young children go off into the world and, and never know the love of Christ. Keep them, Lord. Strengthen us. Ground us in love. Forgive us, Lord, that our love is so weak. And when we come into a place where it is tested, we often are exposed for having such a small love. God, we need you. We need you. Fill us, Lord, to all the fullness of God for your glory. That's what we pray, for your glory.